Welcome to the latest installment of the CSEN podcast. My name is Ole and I'm the Director of Macroeconomic and Monetary Policy Management at the CSEN Center. I'm joined today by Pierre Siklos, who is a Professor of Economics at Wilfrid Laurier University in Canada. Pierre has come to the end of, his, of a two-week stint as a visiting scholar at the CSEN Center. So we will have a, a quick chat about his project or the project he's been doing for us uh, towards the end of, of this brief chat. Let me give you a, a, a brief introduction to those of you who may not know uh, Pierre Siklos. He's a faculty member of the Lazaridis um, School of Business and Economics and the Balsili School of International Affairs, as I said, at Wilfrid Laurier University. Pierre is a prolific writer who specializes in macroeconomics and uh, finance with an emphasis on the study of inflation, central banks, and financial markets. But uh, he's also dabbled in other, in other areas, and I'm very envious because he's got a test named after him. So you may know the Enders and Seeklos uh, uh, test. So this is sort of the holy grail for applied economists to have a, a, a test uh, named after him, or indeed uh, herself. As I said a minute ago, Pierre specializes in the study of central banks and uh, the first uh, first bit of the conversation is uh, about a topic very dear to all of our hearts, which is central banks and central banking. Just to let you know that Pierre has a new book, a relatively new book, uh, even though it apparently took three years to write, but maybe we can hear a bit more about that. And it's called Central Banks Into the Breach. It's um, out, uh, it's been published by Oxford University Press. And let me start by asking Pierre, so there have been a number of books about the global financial crisis, including one or two about central banking. And in fact, you've written a book on central banking before. So what prompted you to write another book on the global financial crisis and, and central banks? Well, I did not intend to write a book. Uh, the last book you referred to was published in 2002, and it dealt with the evolution of central banking roughly since the end of World War II. Uh, but then, you know, we know what happened in 2007 and thereafter, and as you pointed out, many books were published. Most were dealing with certain aspects of the financial crisis. Uh, central banks were sort of the bit players in the sense that they're mentioned, but they weren't the center of the story. And my uh, publisher then, Cambridge University Press, approached me to say, well, maybe, uh, since history did not end with uh, 2002 when the last book was published, perhaps you might want to pick up where you left off and uh, uh, sort of revisit. Uh, at the same time, broadening uh, the perspective, because the last book dealt with uh, mainly uh, Western industrialized economies. And since that time, of course, emerging markets, notably China, came onto the scene and played an ever bigger role uh, in macroeconomic affairs and even to some extent in central banking. And so I uh, decided after some thinking that maybe it's not such a bad idea. And part of the reason it took so long to write is because <laughs> things kept changing. And uh, so I wasn't sure when 
to end it because it never seemed to end. I thought to myself, well, maybe when central banks exit unconventional monetary policies or zero lower bound, that that would be a time to uh, to stop. But that's happening very, very slowly. Uh, the U.S. being the notable exception. But so eventually, I decided, well, it has to end. And so uh, <coughs> late last year, uh, the book was finally published. Now, can you give us just a quick summary of uh, those sort of the main messages uh, of the book? I would say that the, the tendency was for articles and books of this kind to be highly critical of central banks. <clears throat> and while that some of that was deserved, I thought maybe a more balanced view would be uh, appropriate. Uh, central banks did make mistakes. They, uh, whether it was... Uh, things that we're not directly responsible for that influence the financial system uh, and then spilled over into the monetary system. Uh, nevertheless, I think it is fair to say that once central banks recognize the scope of the problem and the scale of the problem, some responded very quickly, notably the U.S. Federal Reserve. Others took longer, like the European Central Bank. And so mistakes were made, but the response was when it did come, it was very forceful and rather convincing. And I think we'll never know the counterfactual, but I think had central banks not intervened the way they did, uh, things would have been much worse. Having said that, of course, mistakes, uh, as I said, were made. And notably, what I found interesting is that <clears throat> for all the talk about all the mistakes that central banks made, uh, you look at, on a global uh, scale, the power of central banks actually increased after the crisis, which seems ironic given that so much of the blame was laid at their feet. So I thought that was an interesting element of the story that uh, needed to be brought, broadened out. And questions need to be asked whether the uh, expansion of the, the, the scale of uh, central bank uh, involvement in the economy is appropriate. But there's a, a third irony, which is that when you look at the history of central banking, Many important central banks were created to deal with financial stability problems. And that went into the background. It was price stability. And then all of a sudden, financial stability comes into the picture. But even now, as we speak, even after the book has been published, uh, we're still not clear about what financial stability means. It means different things to different central banks. And so that's still uh, only a partially written aspect of the story. Yes, I would certainly return, or I'd like to return to this question of the power and responsibilities of central banks a little bit later on. Now, my own thinking about central banks is a bit paradoxical in the sense that, on the one hand, I'd like to think that they did save the world, but once the crisis hit, you know, as you said, mistakes were made, and certainly they did play a role in either not being able to prevent it or even um, foreseeing or, or, or sort of uh, con contemplating the crisis. And in particular, in your book, you talk about two mistakes and one triumph. And I was wondering whether you could, you could elaborate uh, on that a little bit. Certainly. I think the mistake uh, that was made was, um, well, the, the two mistakes were, they're related to each other, but one is sort of, is to convince themselves and perhaps the public that the focus on price stability was enough and that the central bank as an institution that's narrowly concerned with uh, inflation control 
would be sufficient. And there was this sort of unwritten message that <clears throat> price stability might uh, contribute to financial stability. It was always a mixed message because I think central bankers, at least the ones who had some knowledge of history, and uh, certainly there were some, such as Ben Bernanke, understood that the, the link between the two uh, was not always uh, very clear. There was also, I think, uh, the mistake that all you needed was uh, a sufficient amount of transparency, convincing the public that central banks followed a rule-like process in deciding the stance of policy, and that was enough. Uh, that was enough communication. And that's, it's clear that that's not enough. One of the problems where central banks, um, that central banks got into was in having a great deal of difficulty, and I still think they do, communicating the outlook. Uh, after all, having convinced us that price stability is desirable, which I agree with, uh, central bankers also convinced us that the outlook was important and that current decisions are not based on what happened in the past, but the expectation of what will happen in the future. And there, the communication was less clear. The triumph, as I think I alluded to earlier, was that <clears throat> the response to rapidly deteriorating financial conditions and then economic conditions, the response was forceful and was fairly rapid. And so uh, I think they deserve credit for that, as you uh, intimated. Yeah, and again, there's a, a number of, of sort of issues I'd like to delve into in a bit more detail in a second. Um, I was just wondering in to what extent Mohammed El Arian has a book out called The Only Game in Town. And I have a lot of sympathy for that in the sense that basically central banks were left to their own devices in the sense that sort of uh, they had to shoulder the policy response. There was sort of relatively little fiscal policy or any sort of of the other sort of policy tools we can we can think of i'm just wondering whether you would you would ag agree with that that sort of central banks had to do a lot of of the heavy lifting uh, superficially i think that's a pretty good story uh, central banks did do a lot of the heavy lifting because uh, uh, they could respond very quickly whereas politicians and uh, parliaments and to debate and take their time. Uh, while the house is burning, it's a little bit too late. So in that sense, uh, central banks uh, were to some extent the only game in town. But I think uh, it goes both ways. I think central banks kind of like to be the only game in town. Uh, they more off, uh, on more than one occasion, would convince the public, or try to convince politicians and the public, that monetary policy could do a lot of the job. That's not to say that they didn't welcome some fiscal policy uh, uh, assistance. But I think what another thing that was lost pre-crisis was the notion that <coughs> monetary and fiscal policy had to work together. Somehow, fiscal policy became fairly passive, and so monetary policy could take the lead. But when things go wrong, you need fiscal and monetary policy to work together. I think part of the other, the other part of the problem was this notion that because central banks were independent or autonomous, that meant that there, there had to be sort of a, a Chinese wall, so to speak, between fiscal and monetary policy. But there's nothing in principle uh, wrong with the fiscal and monetary authorities getting together. I mean, let's uh, not forget that central banks are independent within government, not from government. And that sometimes that, um, that distinction uh, was lost. 
So, yes, they were. They seem to be the only game in town, but partly it's because they sort of uh, tried to take over, so to speak, and they they enjoyed the being center of attention, and especially when uh, the Great Depression 2.0, as one uh, author referred to it, did not. Mm. Thank you for that. Um, in uh, you, you talked about um, uh, inflation and the importance of price stability, which leads me on to my next question, which is about inflation targeting. So inflation targeting has, has come under a lot of heavy fire and uh, it's taken a, a lot of flack in terms of whether it's fit for purpose or, or how well inflation targeting has done. And I'm always reminded of Churchill's sort of sentence that democracy is the least bad system of all the systems we have tried. So I was just wondering whether, in your opinion, inflation targeting is sort of the least bad monetary policy regime of all the other ones we've tried. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, we tend to forget that inflation targeting emerged <coughs> in the aftermath of exchange rate type of uh, targeting, uh, monetary growth type of targeting. Neither of those seem to be very successful. Uh, convincing the public that price stability is to everyone's advantage was, I think, the, the right way to go. I think the, the difficulty was when central banks uh, tried to convince themselves and the politicians that <coughs> they should stick to their knitting, and that is the, uh, the control of inflation, and all the other things would sort of fall into place. or should be shouldered by other uh, institutions. And uh, it's not clear that that works in all countries at all times. But it's also the case that the and ac academics are, are guilty of this, of confusing uh, the expression inflation targeting to mean the same thing for all central banks. And they mean quite different things for different central banks. For example, where I come from in Canada, Inflation targeting was always associated with uh, no intervention unless conditions warrant or were exceptional. No intervention in foreign exchange markets. But that's not the case in many emerging markets where inflation targeting is practiced. Second, uh, coming back to a point that we talked about earlier, it was also made clear in countries like Canada that <coughs> for inflation targeting to work, the, inflation, the focus on the inflation outlook is vital. So you need decent uh, models or, uh, of, uh, for, or forecasts of inflation. And you need markets to sort of buy into those forecasts. And again, in emerging markets, that's, made much, that's much more difficult. <coughs> yeah, th thank you. Let me return to sort of, as promised, another point, which is that central banks have been given more powers, more responsibility, uh, thankfully, also more tools and uh, instruments. Now, you can say that they've been encumbered with this. You argued that central bankers are, or may have been, quite happy to uh, amass these these sort of extra powers and and extra responsibilities. But as the saying goes, with great power comes great responsibility. So. On the one hand, for the central banks themselves, sort of a much bigger responsibility in terms of the capacity, uh, also the, the personality of, of the governor. Um, so is this a good development for the central banks themselves? And 
does that help or hinder domestic policy coordination? Well, I think the, uh, it's, still <coughs> it's still unclear uh, as we speak. Uh, what I would say, however, is that the trap that central bankers got themselves into by being modestly successful in uh, avoiding a Great Depression and uh, in helping fuel the recovery, so I think they do deserve credit for that, is that now um, the very notion that there have to be so-called structural reforms, another expression which is not very clear, but as seen having to do with the rules and regulations and labor markets, trade, etc., uh, that the pressure that central bankers are trying to apply to politicians to, to do the rest of the job, to make it easier for them to return to monetary policy as it used to be, uh, that's not going so well. And that's in part because these reforms, if they're needed, are not easy to implement. Politicians will disagree about the, the need for them. And if the economy seems to be doing well, well, you tend to forget the pain of the recent past and you simply go on assuming well things are not so bad after all so let's continue why uh, fix it when it's not broken and that's the danger <coughs> let me follow up on that in the sense um, I mean I remember uh, and I may not get the full facts right uh, but uh, in my previous job at the Bank of England if I remember correctly there was we did have a conference on the Great Moderation pretty much on the day that Lehman Brothers uh, happened. So the point I'm trying to make is, I guess, some sort of the, the hubris of central bankers. I mean, there was a lot of talk uh, going into, into the great financial crisis about the death of inflation and sort of the central banker unable to do any wrong. And uh, I was just, I mean, this is a, a very difficult and probably un unfair question to ask, but in terms of the role of a central bank, we, haven't, we don't have the easiest role. Uh, central banks don't have the easiest task uh, at the best of times. Economics is called the dismal science, and central banks have to take away the punch bowl before the party or when, when the party gets, uh, gets going. Um, at the same time, we're not infallible when it comes to sort of overestimating our own powers and I, I think uh, another mistake is that we completely failed to see the crisis coming so would you have any 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 advice in terms of how we can do better next time <laughs> well that's a very difficult question to answer as you said it's slightly unfair I suppose <coughs> uh, not falling into the trap of uh, Displaying too much hubris would be useful. Uh, being a bit more humble would be useful. I think also uh, one thing that central banks are doing, which I think is a good thing, is investing considerable amount of effort and resources in communicating beyond financial markets, but to the public as well. I think they now recognize that uh, as uh, dismal a science as it might be, uh, there are certain things I think we do understand about the economy on, in normal conditions. And I think emphasizing the risks where they come from and the, the fact that uh, central banks do stand ready to intervene if necessary, but only if necessary, 
I think is a useful lesson, and I think it, uh, any reasonable person will say, well, uh, we have uh, a reasonably smart set of people running these central banks, and uh, if there's something unexpected, uh, they'll make every effort to respond uh, appropriately and communicate that. And uh, I think at this stage, that's all you can ask for. And I suppose uh, the other thing is uh, they should ask is uh, for a little bit more support and coordination with the fiscal authorities when things do go wrong. Not wait until they have gone wrong, but uh, try to involve the fiscal authorities as quickly as possible, because mm. that's typically what you need. You need both. Mm. I mean, certainly I remember the, the UK case where the... The Bank of England had the lowest interest rates for 320 odd years, trying to trying to boost the economy, and the government at the same time was running a policy of uh, austerity, i.e., a very tight fiscal policy, doing i.e., doing the the uh, exact opposite. So uh, I have a, a lot of a lot of sim- sympathy for that. And let me return to this point about um, communication, and. Uh, a small number or a handful of central bank in order to enhance clarity and transparency are actually publishing their own interest rate forecast. It's mainly the Scandinavian countries and uh, uh, one or two banks in Central and, and Eastern Europe. Um, is that something you are happy with? Do you think the public is able to understand the sort of conditional nature of an interest rate forecast? Uh, I used to be a very strong uh, supporter of the release of interest rate forecasts uh, because thinking about the the Canadian situation when forward guidance, which is I think what you're referring to, was introduced, um, I thought it was done fairly successfully, but without the release of of an interest rate path uh, that was expected, uh, conditional on certain events. Uh, I still think it's not uh, a bad idea. But I'm less convinced that it's uh, as useful as it mm, as uh, as even myself I thought uh, would have been the case earlier. Part of the problem is that an interest rate is made up of um, of more than one factor. Uh, it's made up of a, a a real factor, which is supposedly uh, dictated in part by the overall productivity of the economy. We now think that there are demographic factors that come into play, which we don't quite yet understand. <coughs> and then there's the outlook for inflation over different horizons. And we talk about interest rates uh, as if it, there's just one interest rate, but there are interest rates for uh, next week, for next month, for five years, for 10 years. And communicating all those things at once is actually a lot more challenging than uh, even I was uh, uh, willing to admit. So, is it? Uh, does it help? Perhaps uh, it. I don't think it hurts, but I don't think it's necessarily the uh, as important as I once thought. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think communicating the inflation outlook and the outlook for the aggregate economy is uh, probably more important mm-hmm. than communicating potential future paths for the interest mm-hmm. rate. This leads us nicely to the next topic I was going to chat to you about, which is, I know it's a topic close to your heart, and it's a, it's a topic close to, close to my heart as well, which is uh, modeling and forecasting. So in particular, forecasting the economy. And uh, I know that you have some, some views about forecasting at central banks in terms of 
sort of do's and don'ts and setups and uh, some ideas, in particular in terms of comparing economic forecasting with the weather forecasting. I don't know whether you can you can tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, certainly. So I know that uh, some central bankers have tried to make the link between weather forecasting and improvements in weather forecasting and economic forecasting, and and some of those lessons are, are valuable, uh, but we have to be clear. Uh, weather forecasters do deal with, uh, to some extent, with physical laws. Economists, unfortunately, uh, don't get to do that. But what is especially valuable, though, in the developments in uh, weather forecasting is to abandon the notion that there's a single path or a single model that will help us understand you know, potential outcomes. And so uh, much of the effort has been made, thanks to uh, developments in computing power, to develop different paths. And the best example, and I think everyone uh, would understand this, is when there's uh, an announcement that there's a, a cyclone or a typhoon in this part of the world, hurricanes in the part of the world I live in, uh, now weather forecasters are very careful not to just show one line, but to show a series of lines and to emphasize that there are risks, that there's a, 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 a strong expectation uh, that there will be one path, but that path can change. And I think that aspect is very useful and can be translated into uh, economics. It requires a lot more effort because it means you're no longer dealing with a model which you're subjecting to different manipulation, but you're dealing with a family of models, each of which have different predictions. And you're trying to make sense of which one applies under which circumstance. And it seems to me that's reasonable because circumstances do change. Uh, certain forces become more dominant at certain times than others. And that would naturally lead you to favor one model over another. And that's essentially <coughs> what governs these, um, or rather what partially governs some of these uh, weather forecasting models. And I think that's a lesson uh, we should uh, take seriously in economics. In the sense that it forces us to think about the assumptions underlying each of the models that go into the family Correct. of models and That's to right. what extent the assumptions hold may hold true or, or not. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, this this might be fanciful, and I mean, I, I don't know all that much about uh, about weather forecasting, but I mean, I, I do remember sitting next to someone uh, at at a luncheon a number of years ago, who worked for a sort of long-range European weather forecasting institute, where you know they would try and forecast the weather for the next fifty or a hundred years or something. I mean, as I said, this 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 might be quite quite. Ludicrous, but I mean, is there any mileage in doing something similar in terms of economic forecasting, or? Well, I suppose that's sort of a holy grail, I suppose. But uh, I think in economics, the best we can do, I think, is to be a little bit more modest. I think if we improve considerably our ability to forecast, let's say, five years out, I think I would be very happy. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, I know that economists like to think that when they look at uh, yields on long-term bonds that uh, mature in 10 years or more. That gives them some clues about uh, what might happen 10 years hence, but um, we know that those uh, forecasts or those expectations are revised quite substantially. So uh, certainly it's worth uh, devoting effort to forecasting beyond, say, the, the one or two year 
cycle that we uh, think of when we think of monetary policy actions. But uh, beyond five years is, is rather difficult. Uh, another thing you advocate in your book for central banks are external reviews um, in terms of uh, getting central banks to raise their game and uh, well and as um, sort of a I guess a sanity check and uh, also to um, to provide more information uh, to the public I, I do have a, a lot of a, lo a lot of sympathy for that. However, I mean, that being said, you know, I also fear that we live in a world these days where there's a lot of distrust of experts. So, you know, who is going to do the review, the external review of central banks? It'll be some, some expert who's drafted in. And is there sort of a, a possibility that uh, these external reviews might sort of have negative or the sort of the opposite cons consequence if if the review finds something that someone would go oh it's just the experts view they would say this uh, and so on and so forth well there's always that danger and especially in the case of external reviews where it's done more or less internally so the central bank decides because it's a sensible thing to do to obtain an external review perhaps uh, about its forecasting record or its governance, uh, bits and pieces as opposed to the whole, there's always that danger. I think one way to avoid this is to uh, use, um, I suppose, uh, sort of a combination of models that I've seen in uh, Norway and Sweden and even in Canada where, just to take the Canadian example, it's not the only one, but what typically, at least in theory, happens is that the central bank and the, the government uh, uh, or the central bank rather, uh, goes away and once an inflation target agreement is reached, goes away and thinks about what kinds of topics should we uh, study and for what reason and how might this affect the renewal of the inflation target in five years, which is the, the horizon that we look at in Canada. Now in theory, the government is supposed to be somewhat involved in the sense that this is a joint decision. In practice, it may not always work that way. Uh, but it would be nice if the, the theory <coughs> and the practice would meet and that government officials uh, would be as involved in the thinking about renewing a, a policy strategy. And the difficulty, of course, is that, again, coming back to the point you raised about experts, is that people will say, well, the expertise resides in the central bank, uh, less so in government finance ministries. And so one way around this problem, I suppose, is to uh, uh, beef up the uh, research and analytic capacity of finance ministries so that in fact uh, they're not just it's not the case where the central bank is just talking to the finance ministry and says well this is what we think and then they rubber stamp it so to speak but that there's a general conversation between the two because after all the officials who work in the finance ministries are ultimately responsible to their ministers who are uh, political uh, that's a political position and then this way there's a shared responsibility, which is what, what you would think is ideal. Whether that solves the, the expert problem, I don't know. Uh, but it's hard to think of uh, uh, a non-expert uh, knowing where to start and evaluating what a central bank does and why. Sure. I uh, waylaid you before with an, with an unfair question. Let me, let me sort of throw another one potentially unfair question uh, at you just to conclude th this part of our, of our conversation, um, which is this vexing question of central bank cooperation. 
I mean, you've you've written two books on on central banks. It's a topic that comes up uh, uh, comes up occasionally, especially in uh, in our region. The the fact that the existence of the of the taper tantrum as as an indication of the lack of central bank cooperation. Now, I mean, obviously, on the one hand, it, it's 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 quite difficult to achieve in the sense that all central banks have a domestic remit or have a remit that is primarily or exclusively focused on domestic uh, domestic targets. That being said, I think there are recent examples of successful cooperation to a certain extent, one being these swap lines that the Fed uh, offered to other central banks around the world, albeit a limited number of central banks and not, and, and not every central bank that asked for a swap line was given a swap line. And I would argue even the... Uh, and you talked about this before, even the more, I mean, it wasn't coordinated as such, but all central banks lowering interest rates more or less simultaneously, or or in the case of the ECB, maybe with a lag. Um, So there is sort of still glimmers of cooperation. Now, we don't see this in terms of the reversal of the accommodative monetary policy. Uh, It's a very long introduction to basically sort of throwing the question at you whether central bank cooperation or the nice nice to have is is ever feasible well hopefully it's feasible i suppose the the example and it may not be the best example that i like to think of is in the aftermath of the crisis the uh, growing role of the financial stability board and they have devised uh, are trying to devise and continue to devise rules of of conduct in the financial sector. It's an effort that's uh, uh, led uh, primarily by uh, central banks and, of course, uh, finance ministry officials, but primarily by central banks. And I think what is useful is that rather than, because they can't force individual countries to adopt these rules, is to uh, adopt uh, a strategy of what I would call moral suasion. That is to say, look, uh, we want to avoid any future crisis of the kind we had before, and that requires that there are some general rules of behavior that we ought to adopt and that uh, are reasonable. They don't uh, uh, straitjacket countries so much that uh, some feel that they're at a disadvantage relative to others. It's not an easy job, but uh, they've managed to make a lot of progress. And so I view what the Financial Stability Board uh, has done as being a very useful lesson. Mm -hmm. Uh, And otherwise, of course, we know that central banks, it's not as um, widely publicized, but they cooperate informally and have done so for decades. And more, uh, more often than not, that seems to work. I think it's asking a little bit much for political reasons to expect a central bank um, to uh, call up other central banks and say, uh, look, uh, we're going to raise the policy rate by 50 basis points. Uh, I think there's sufficient amount of discussion that they're at least aware of the, these possibilities. So unless you want to set up a hotline as, a, as between Russia and uh, the United States, I think this kind of cooperation is probably the best we can expect for 
uh, for the time being. Okay, I've grilled you enough. Let me let me just uh, finish off by asking you just a quick question about the research project you've been you've been working on and you've been doing for us. Whether you, you could tell us a little bit about uh, uh, what that what that project is is all about. Uh, certainly. So the project deals with uh, what I refer to as commodity-sensitive economies. So these are econ economies where exports and imports of commodities are substantial. Malaysia is a good example. Canada is another good example. There's a mix of emerging markets and advanced economies that face uh, uh, these conditions. And of course, uh, these economies face these conditions in a world which uh, is still uh, where maybe there's not as much financial globalization as there used to be, but uh, shocks from large economies like China, the U.S., and the Eurozone do still get transmitted to the rest of the world. And how these economies uh, respond to these shocks, particularly when it affects commodity prices, and how their monetary policies respond in the face of uh, fairly volatile commodity prices is basically the, the main aim of the the topic, and as a as an aside, asking the question: Well, uh, since there are spillovers from these large, systemically important economies, how large are they? Because there's uh, an ongoing debate that uh, emerging markets have suffered at the expense of advanced economies, but uh, the world is a little bit more complicated than that. That there are there are certainly the possibility of uh, losses, but there are also the possibility of benefits. So trying to sort those two things out uh, is also partly the aim of the, the project. Fantastic. So if you want to know more, it's a work in progress. Um, I, I think we're looking at uh, June, uh, June or July in terms of, uh, of the, finished pro uh, the finished product. So let me thank Pierre Ciclos uh, once again for, for talk talking to us today. As always, you can contact us at podcast at csen.org via email or at the hashtag CSEN Center if you have any questions or comments, queries, or if you want to get in touch with us. So tune in next month for our, uh, our next podcast. And Pierre, thanks again. Thank you.